When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like growing up surrounded by music. For those of you who are taking this journey with us for the first time, we're speaking with musicians whose parents made a name for themselves in the music business. We'll see how they caught the music bug themselves and ultimately what inspired them to continue the family legacy and pursue their own musical journeys. I'm Robert K. Orman. I'm joined by my producer, Brad Newman. Hey, Brad. Hey, hey, Robert. Good to be with you here again. I'm loving this here. Yeah, well, we're here in my very own house with great grandma's furniture all around us, (laughs) restored by yours truly. And uh, this is called our Nashville Sessions. And uh, we have our guest today is a guy whose dad is defines the term legend. I mean, he is a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, any kind of Hall of Fame, and deservedly so. He had hits like King of the Road and Dang Me. Later, he went on to write the score for the Broadway musical Big River, which won seven Tony Awards, did film soundtracks, did television. We're talking, of course, about the incomparable Roger Miller. As I said, Dean Miller, his son, joins us this morning. Dean is an accomplished singer-songwriter himself and a producer, with songs like Wake Up and Smell the Whiskey and Nowhere USA. And Terry Clark's hit, A Little Gasoline, is also a Dean Miller song. He's had his songs recorded by George Jones, Trace Atkins, Tricia Yearwood, Jamie Johnson, Joe Nichols, Mark Chesnut, Hank Williams III, and a whole bunch more. It's great to have you here this morning, buddy. Thank you. (laughs) Am I supposed to keep playing? (laughs) You can fade on out. (laughs) I always fade on out. Musically, too. How are you? I'm great. Nice to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. It has been a while. I know. Your dad was an oversized personality, no matter how you stretch it. I mean, just being around him, we sort of, he pretty much took over a room. Yes, an oversized personality, but an undersized person. Um, No, uh, he definitely was not, um, he was definitely not uh, uh, ordinary, for sure. He was a a one of a kind guy. And I think there's that old thing Mark Twain said, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but I'm paraphrasing. You know, between the ages of 18 and 25, I was amazed how much my father had learned. Right. Well, you know, the, every year that passes, I realize how wise my dad was and how much he had going for him. And I, I only wish I'd realized it while he was still here to tell him because he was a, a wise, incredible, one of a kind person. Smart as a whip. Smart as a whip. So fast and mm-hmm. funny. And I, I like to think I've inherited some of that. You know, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse because it's a blessing because you're always thinking funny, but it's a curse because. Not everybody is up to speed with you, so your head's always narrating life, you know? <laughs> You're a child of divorce, so how did that work with him growing up? Were you around a lot or not? Oh, my gosh. Well, my dad was married three times, had seven kids. I can draw a graph for you, but we'd be here all day. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was, okay, he had, I was from the second marriage. Oldest child from the second marriage. I have one full-blooded sister. I hope you're keeping score at home. Um, but... 
I'm the only child that got his full name. I'm Roger Dean Miller Jr. I'm the only kid who plays music. I'm the only guy who went into it professionally. I look like him. I act like him. I joke like him. So I think I got all the good parts. I'm lucky. <laughs> and I grew up with him. And um, So he was around. Yeah, I spent most of my childhood with my father, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. When you were just a little teeny tiny kid, he actually wrote a song for you. I think that's just so cool. Yeah, you want to hear it? Yeah. It's, um, it's a Christmas song. My dad um, my, my dad wrote this when I was about two years old, and it's uh, they play it all the time. It's been cut by a lot of different people, but uh, my version is, of course, the best. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I actually, we actually put out a, a version, a duet with my dad. Um, we made it after he passed away, but it's pretty cool. This is called Old Toy Trains. Old toy trains, little toy tracks, little boy toys coming from a sack, carried by a man dressed in white and red. Little boy, don't you think it's time you were in bed? And close your eyes, listen to the skies. All is calm, all is well. Soon you'll hear Chris Kringle and the jingle bells bringing old toy trains, little toy tracks, little boy toys coming from a sack carried by a man dressed in white and red. Little boy, don't you think it's time you were in bed? Hmm. Isn't that cute? So nice. that, I love, I've always great. loved I that. I love your voice. Oh, thank you. Would you so like to nice. buy it? <laughs> <laughs> he is, nobody else does, so if you want to buy it, that'd be great. <laughs> you started writing yourself at a fairly early age, like, what, 13 or so? Yeah, how do you know that? Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, I started writing. You're like uh, James Lipton. You know things that I don't want people to know. Um, yeah, I, my Just dad. Just wait. Well, you, you can only imagine, like, growing up in a house with the world's greatest songwriter and going, um, hey, I write songs, too. You know, it's like, yeah, what was no, the, How did right? that work? <laughs> well, the, the, the thing is, first of all, my stepmom, who I also grew up with, was with Kenny Rogers in the first edition. She was a singer. Mary. And she, Mary, and mm -hmm. she had perfect pitch, has perfect pitch. So she can hear when something's slightly off. And then my dad is the best lyricist and writer in the world. So I'd be in the living room and I'd hear from the next room, flat. <laughs> oh, ouch, sharp. You know, I'd hear that. And then I'd finally get the courage to go, okay, here's a little song I wrote. My dad would go, okay, now the bridge needs work. And over here where it lifts, it needs to do that. And you, you need to cut this line, that words, you know. Oh, my gosh. You know, your parents are supposed to go, Yay, that's so good. <laughs> no, but he wanted to doctor your songs right from the They wanted to doctor them from square one. Uh -huh. My dad used to say, and it used to make me mad, but he was right. He said, if I tell you you're great, and then you go out in the world and fall flat on your face, I'm not doing you any favors. So he didn't want to lie or fake me out. He was always very, he wasn't harsh or anything, but he was truthful. So you found it constructive what he did? Uh, yes. At the time, I, I didn't like it. I used uh, For a long time, it kind of made me hide myself. Like I felt like, oh, I'll never live up to that. But I think in my early 20s, I thought if I don't pursue music, I'll, you know, die, you know. So I, I just had to do it. It was kind of, it kind of took me over. So I did it in what's spite the, of it. What's him. the first song that he really approved of of yours? Okay. Oh, my gosh. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't probably tell you that. Um, I do 
I do remember him starting to encourage me as I got to Nashville. I think he felt like I'd hit a, a, a point where I was starting to get it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also told me, you know, when I moved to Nashville, he said, uh, I'm not going to make phone calls for you. I'm not going to set up meetings. I'm not going to open doors for you. If, if it's going to mean anything to you, it's going to mean it to you because you did it on your own. Which also made me mad, but he was right about that, too. Um, He said, the one thing you can do is use my name, and that'll open a lot of doors. And he was right. It opened a lot of doors. But he said, once you get there, you better have what it takes, or they're going to kick you out. Play me a a song that kind of opened the door for you. It was like something you knew when you you knew you had something. Oh, well... I, the first time I really felt I knew I had something, I started writing with a guy named Sean Camp. He was one I of love my, Sean Camp. Yeah, he was one of my first friends I met when I moved to Nashville, and we were kind of inseparable for a while. And we used to write together all the time. And he had an album out on Warner Brothers, and we wrote a couple of songs on there, and those were the first cuts I got. So when he started recording those songs, um, I felt like I really had a handle on it. I also felt like because of who my dad was when I came to town, that I had a higher standard, higher standard for myself, higher standard for other people. So a lot of times, it's awful to say, but I'd be writing with somebody and I'd go, oh, you're bad. Oh, that sucks. That's terrible because I just really had a higher standard. You know, um, I don't remember what one of the first things was, but I can tell you that the moment I felt like I had transcended from ordinary to... Um, you know, I can die happy is when George Jones cut one of my songs. So if you want to hear a little bit of that, it goes something like this. Well, the twister tore the roof off the grocery store, blew a knot a hoe potato through the hardwood floor, twirled Granny's apron up around her head, the cat's gone missing and the dog is dead. Well, ain't love a lot like that. Ain't love a lot like that. Unconditional, unpredictable, ain't love a lot like that. <laughs> mm. That's got a little Roger to it, doesn't it? A little bit, yes, it does. Yes, a lot of fun. That is Thanks. fun. <laughs> you, it also is a little on the goofy side, goofy, which is also a Roger characteristic. Do you think it's important to have a sense of humor in this business? Oh, if you don't, you're going to die. <laughs> and then the people I know who don't have a sense of humor about it are the most miserable people, and I don't like to be around them. I don't. I, I don't like to be around somebody who can't have a sense of humor about themselves. I mean, Roger, everything that came out of his mouth was, you know. A gem. Yes. People used to follow him around a tree at the publishing company and just write down stuff that he would just toss off. That's right. You know, because everything he said was a song. Yeah. And the interesting mm-hmm. thing is, I think the source of it all was a little bit of insecurity because he said, when I, I learned when I was funny that it would bring people around. And he said, I didn't want people to go away. I wanted to make friends and I wanted to be around people. So he said, if I could make people laugh, I knew they'd stay. That, that's interesting. What was he like when he was just with you? The, the interesting thing about my dad, I will tell you, is that he was exactly the same on as he was off. Um, although he, he did have a dark side, I would say. He had a very, very hard childhood. He had a, some terrible events in his childhood. He had a rough growing up. and um, Really didn't have parents. Right. But, and when he, when he had a sad kind of period, he just kind of kept it to himself and, and you know, went away, so to speak. Um, but he was... He was generally, you know, when he was uh, sick and he was close to the end of his life, he said, uh, I'm just not ready for it to be over because it's all so good. He, he really built a life that was really, really good and fun. He wanted it to always be fun and enjoyable, I think, because the first half of his life was so not, you know. Yeah. Play us a little something funny of Rogers, like maybe my uncle used to love me, but she died. Oh, boy. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd or something that gives people a flavor for what a 
fun and goofy writer he was. Oh my gosh! Now I'm blanking on the on the funny because I don't usually think of the oh, funny. Dagny's direct. funny. Yeah, but um, I will. Can I play something else? It's not really that funny, but it kind of shows the insanity of his melodies, which I love. Which because yeah, they were neat. Yeah, the one thing I would say about my dad is that he um, he wasn't afraid to just take giant leaps and go off. And anyway, when I was two or three years old, four years old, this was my favorite song, and I'd always ask him to sing it. And he'd always point me out and say, it's my son's favorite song, so I'm, I'm just going to do a little of this. I don't know how funny it is, but... Um... Walking in the sunshine, sing a little sunshine song. Put a smile upon your face as if there's nothing wrong. Think about a good time you had a long time ago. Think about forgetting about your worries and your woes. Walking in the sunshine, sing a little sunshine song. Now here comes the insanity. La, 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 dio. Whether the weather be a rain or snow, pretending can make it real. A snowy pasture, a green and grassy field, a rip it, bop, but down walking in the sunshine, sing a little sunshine song. You get the idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, fun. He'd just go all over the place. And the one thing I, I learned late in life was that his melodies, even if they had no words, just made you feel good. And he was the king of making you feel good, I think. And and speaking of that, if you look at Robin Hood, the Disney movie that he was the, the rooster in and he narrated and wrote, but there's a song in the beginning called Whistle Stop, and it has no lyrics, but it has four verses. And it's... Um, it, he whistles it, he hums it, he makes a goofy voice, and he makes like a trumpet sound. But there are no words. I love that whole soundtrack. Yeah, it's great. Oh, I do too. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. So it's you play for your little girls, don't you? I, I I haven't played it for them, but I sort of rediscovered it. Oodalali, uh, mm-hmm. Oh God, that was so fun last night. I was listening. I listened to it twice. Right. So, <laughs> so that's a made-up word. He just made up that song. Oodalali, Oodalali. God, what a day! He just made it up, and then they incorporated it in the script as a code word amongst Robin Hood and and Little John as their code word throughout the movie. So. <laughs> Um, but I remember being a little kid, seven or eight years old, and I would go down and watch them working on that movie. Him doing voices and watching stuff on a screen and then looking at all the storyboards and putting that all together. It was How many kids get to do that? And then he did the storybook thing where he it's got a record and stories and the music. And he brought me to the studio and sat me on the floor and, and sang and talked to me so that it would be him actually doing it for a kid. How perfect. Isn't that great? How totally perfect. Yeah. There was a period of time in my right where you kind of ran away from music. Let yeah. Me, tell mm-hmm. me about that. You what, you were intimidated? You felt you were too much in the shadow? Or? Well, no. I guess I would say, you know, millions of people... I, how do I put this? Um, every time I make music, there are uh, millions of people who don't care. And... <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I think it's uh, it's not that I live in the shadow. I don't feel like that. I just feel like it. It my music, and I don't blame anybody or anything. I just feel like it can never be taken on its own merit. It will always be. Here's Roger Miller's son who wrote this out, song. Here's Roger Miller's son who did an album. Here's Roger Miller's son who did. And uh, I don't. 
I don't know how to, I don't, I may never overcome that, but for a long time, I just kind of gave up on myself. I felt like I'll write these songs, I'll make these songs. They never go beyond. They never go anywhere. Nothing happens. I have had three record deals where I just sit there and they don't do anything with it. And um, so I had to go through a, a real spiritual kind of reawakening in myself, and I don't want to get too esoteric, but um, I started living life for the sake of living life instead of for the results. And I used to always say, well... I'll be happy when I get a record deal. I'll be happy when I get a gold record. I'll be happy when I have a number one song. And I realized I was making myself not happy by saying I, I refuse to be happy till that happens. Mm. So I stepped away from it. I actually discovered dog training, which was therapeutic for me. And I realized I have a real kind of a gift for it. I wrote a book about it called The Dog's Way on Amazon.com. Pick it up anytime you want. And, um, <laughs> and I just started make, I started designing my life so I love it, not for other people. So I, I now train dogs, produce music, and, and occasionally make an album. And you tried to act at one point too, right? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. Early on in my um, or late teens, early 20s, I studied that in college because I thought, well, I want to be in entertainment, but I'll never be as good as my dad. So I was a closeted songwriter, kind of kept it to myself. But by the time I got to be 25, I thought, if I don't do this, I'm going to implode. So I quit everything, moved from L.A. to Nashville, and the rest is a mystery. I mean, history. <laughs> so, That's when I got to know you, when you, when yeah, you came back. Right. The uh, <clears throat> You... He discouraged you from singing his songs, is that right? Yes. He didn't want you to do a Roger Miller clone thing. No. He said Tell me that, about that. He said, don't do that. He said, be yourself. Do your own thing. Write your own stuff. Make your own music. Uh, you know, somebody's already done my stuff, and it's me. So, you know, why? <laughs> why? But they must always come up to you. They want to hear King of yes. the Road. They want to hear it from you. Oh, and, yeah. And what do you, I mean... Oh, I used to do this thing. I, do, I, I mean, it, it still happens all the time, but, you know, you just... I used to be mad about it. I'm not mad about it. I don't care anymore. I understand what it is. Music is attached to people's memories and times in their life. So when they think of those songs, they think of how it affected their life and what it meant to them. And my songs don't have that same meaning to them. So they're not connected to my songs. But I used to, when I had record deals and stuff, they'd send, they'd send you around to record, I mean, to radio stations to, to try to promote yourself. And I'd sit there and sing three, four of my own songs, and they'd get to the end, and they haven't even been listening. They just go, King of the Road, do King of the Road, do dang it. They don't care. So I, at a point, you can either be mad about it or you can accept it. It's, it's not going to change. So that's what it is. Would you sing it for them? Sing what? If, would you sing King no, of the Road for I'd them? No, I'd say I have a million answers for that. I don't know the words. Uh, never heard of it. Uh, you sing it. <laughs> um, Everybody here, does know it. <laughs> here's my guitar. You do it. You know, um, I just really have a million answers for, for not doing it. I will do it if, if I think it means something to the person, but I think if I think it's somebody putting me on the spot or something, I kind of nicely, politely. Instead, will you do Nowhere USA? Oh, sure. Oh my gosh. That's an ancient song. <laughs> this was his debut single. Oh, this was my debut single. It, uh, went to, it, it, it skyrocketed to the middle. It was, uh, <laughs> but, uh, oh, I can't believe you. How does anybody remember that song? This is from a thousand years ago, but this is my first single. They call me Hayseed Country Boy, but what I am I can't avoid. My hometown streets are part of me, yeah. The city limit signs are back to back. We ain't even a dot on the map. Nothing to do but man. 
you feel free Back in the way USA That's where I'm from and where I'll stay You can have your Broadway nights I'll take stars and pale moonlight And raise my kids someday In nowhere USA I'm Robert K. Orman, and you're listening to Children of Song, and our guest today is Dean Miller, singer-songwriter extraordinaire. So, growing up with Roger Miller, did you meet a lot of famous people? Were there people hanging out, and you, you know, oh my uh-huh. God, there's Chris Christopherson, there's Johnny Cash, or whatever? Yeah, but I didn't think of them that way. I just mm-hmm. thought, you know, here's somebody, and here's my dad's friends, you know, and I, I didn't understand the impact of it. I mean, like... I didn't understand what it meant to have Merle Haggard sit next to you on the couch and sing. I didn't know what that meant. You know, I, I, I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it meant when you'd come home from school on the school bus and there's a helicopter parked in your front yard because Glenn Campbell landed to come see you. You know, <laughs> I didn't know these things, that they were big deals. Um, but now I do. Now I really get it. You know, when I was a little boy, um, Chris Christopherson used to scare me because he had a beard and he looked scary to me. And. And so I called him the ugly brown monster. And um, so every time Chris would come around, I, I'd make this face and put my hands up and I'd say, I'm ugly and I'm brown. I'm the <laughs> ugly brown monster. And I would talk like him and that was like a big thing we did, you know. Was he nice to you? Yeah, he still is. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he'd, he'd slide up to me at stuff and go, hey, it's the ugly brown monster. You know, like, you know, because it, it was a thing. He's in your video. He's, He's in, in my video. video. Oh my gosh, yes, thank you. So... Uh, one of the things I did when I uh, came out of self-imposed seclusion was I, I said, I'm going to record some of these songs I've been sitting on. And I made this little record called Till You Stop Getting Up, available on Amazon.com. <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I said to myself, well, you know, I'd written this song about a boxer and it was a metaphor for, um, you know, the, the, the hook line of the song says, it, you ain't a loser till you stop getting up. And it uses the metaphor of a boxer, but it's talking about giving up on life and giving up on yourself. And it was my own story. I'd given up on myself. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I will, uh, you know, I'm going to make a video of this. And Chris Christopherson was a Golden Gloves boxer. He was. And a lot of people don't know that. And uh, this song is about a guy sitting in a bar next to an old down and out boxer who's drunk. And this guy has lost his wife or woman or whatever and he's sitting in the bar getting drunk at 10 in the morning and this old boxer's next to him getting drunk and the the old boxer starts giving him advice and telling him you ain't a loser till you stop getting up so i thought if i can get chris to be in this video and play the old boxer it's kind of a cool story if we have a moment to tell it but um when i arrived at the set to shoot the thing and whatever with him i said uh he said to me um did you write this song about that story i told you and I said, I don't know what story you're talking about. And he said, uh, you know, the one about, and then he told me the story. And I didn't know the story, but the story of the song actually used elements of the story that I didn't know existed. So it was kind of a weird little spiritual thing. But quick, real quickly, Chris was a, a Golden Gloves boxer who was probably 19 or 20 years old. And um, he had won his first big championship. He was living in L.A. at the time. His first big match, I mean, and uh, he got all this coverage in the paper because he was like this good looking guy and he won. Too pretty to be a boxer. Too pretty to be a boxer and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so he got this uh, this um, 
press and attention. And he said, it all went to my head. I just thought, I'm just the king of the world. I'm the coolest thing ever. And on his third fight, he said he was in the first round and he was fighting a Mexican boxer who punched him in the liver so hard he thought he was going to die, he said. He went down. And he said he got himself back up, but the moment he got punched in the liver, he said, that's when I lost the fight. And he said, I stayed in for two more rounds, but I was done from the time I got punched. And, when, and so he said, I gave up on myself before the fight was over. And he said he was standing around after the fight, and a Mexican kid came up to him and said, uh, I can tell you're not a Mexican. And he said, why is that? And he said, because a Mexican will never quit. Never. And he said, he said, I took that moment, and what he was talking about, he said, it changed my whole life, because he said the only time is over is when you quit. Oh, you have to play us a little bit of this. I, I, I want to hear this. Okay, um, if I can remember it. This is the title tune of Dean's current album. I don't even know if I can remember it. Jack Kelly was a fighter when he was young. Massachusetts Golden Gloves, champion 1961. He's on the bar stool next to mine. It's 10 a.m. on Monday morning, Eastern Standard Time. I don't feel like talking, but Jack sure does. You got that hundred-yard stare, son. Won't you tell me who she was? She burned you bad, don't think it don't show. I've been in them shoes before, and there's one thing that I know. You stop getting That's a cool good. song. Yeah. Yeah. But so, there's there's a video you can look it up on YouTube and it's me and Chris in a bar. How cool. Yeah. You have come to a point of acceptance of your legacy and what you have to carry around yes. all the time. And then you're working on a record right now, right? About your dad? Uh yes, we're doing a tribute album, which um uh, uh, you know, I don't know how much I'm supposed to talk about, but I, I'll talk about it and then I'll get in trouble later. But uh, a friend of mine named Cole Wright came to me with this idea and he said, let's make a record that's a tribute to your dad. And people have tried this before. And uh, I, I won't say who and where, but several labels and several people have said, let's do a tribute album to your dad. And as we start, it always starts down the same path. Okay, now here's the compromise we're going to make and here's the budget. No, you can't do it that way. And we're going to put this person on the record we're trying to promote and here's this new act on our label that has to be a part of it and it, on and on and on and on. Well, this was the first time someone came to me and said, uh, let's just do it where we take each artist and say, if you love Roger Miller, here's the money, go do it however you want to do it. Ah. Mm. So we have 30 acts. We have about 30 acts on this record and they each took the money. Some of, some of it I produced, some of it my partner and I produced together. It's all different. And some of it is produced by the people themselves or the people they work with. However they wanted to do it, they could do it as long as they stayed in budget. 
So you can imagine this album sounds like 30 different things with 30 different artists. I like it. Uh, I, it's, <laughs> it's the way it should be. <laughs> and it's all their interpretation of love about my dad. And so out of these 30 artists, it includes people like uh, Dolly Parton, Ringo Starr, Chris Christopherson, Merle Haggard, one of the last things he recorded, Willie Nelson. Um, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And plus there's all these young, cool, amazing artists that may not be known to the world yet, but that are, were influenced by my dad and that are incredible, like Lily Miola and um, just some incredible people. It's, wow, it's a great that thing. sounds very interesting. Did anybody choose material from Big River? Yes. Really? Because um, I think a lot of those songs really hold up well. There is a, an incredible thing that I can't wait for everybody to hear that is Ronnie Dunn with the Blind Boys of Alabama singing The Crossing which is a song from Big River. And this song is one of the best things I think my dad ever wrote, and I'll tell you why. Um, he, was, he wrote Big River, the, the Broadway musical, won seven Tony Awards. He actually said uh, he was offered to do a Broadway musical three times before he accepted it. He kept saying, no, I don't know how to do that. No, I'm not going to do it. And then he finally said, okay, I'll do it. And then it turned into a big success. <laughs> a big producer named Rocco Landisman was a real believer in Roger Miller and just pretty much insisted that he do That's this. That's right. <laughs> because he said the only person who could put music to Mark Twain would be Roger Miller. And so he, he put, the, that was his vision and he made it happen. And he really did. And and as my dad used to say, Rocco made me an offer I couldn't understand. So, uh, so there was that. And then as the other thing he said was, he said, you know, for, for these songs, I had to induce labor. So that was, uh, but this song had a line in the play and there was no song. It said, uh, there was, there's a scene in the play where it's the story of Huckleberry Finn. And Jim, the runaway slave, and Huckleberry Finn are on a raft and it's night and they hear a raft coming, and they hide. And um, there are uh, there are slaves on this boat. Uh, and Jim says, uh, "Those are runaway slaves that have been captured and are being taken back into slavery from freedom." And Huck says, "How do you know that?" And he says, "I hear it in their singing." Ooh. So my father had to write why you hear it in their singing. And it's the, one of the most beautiful pieces in, in, that I've ever heard. And once you hear Ronnie Dunn and the Blind Boys of Alabama do it, it's transcendent. It's unbelievable. Give me a little favor. I, I, I don't know it. Um, I'll just sing a little a cappella, but it goes, it's very gospel. My voice doesn't lend itself to that, but it goes, the lyrics are, cross into the other side. Um, and then a little, and then the verse says, um, we are pilgrims on a journey through the darkness of the night. We are bound for other places, crossing to the other side. And Jesus will be there to meet me. He will reach his hand in mine, and I will no more be a stranger when I reach the other side. Wow. So Very cool. Very yeah. powerful. You know, it sounds first... much better when a, a group of singers... I can hear the blind boys on that for yes, sure. It's yeah. unreal. Yeah. yeah, They're wonderful singers. You know, the first time I ever met Roger, he was staying at the Spence Manor, mm -hmm. 
And the, one of the things he wanted to do while he was in Nashville was surround himself by a group of young writers. And could I call up, a couple, up some people and have them come over there and do a writer and, you know, cool. sing him songs. That's basically. cool. Which I thought that was really neat of somebody of mm-hmm. that stature oh, yeah. to want to hear Baby, baby Act songs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I thought, was he a real nurturer that way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and he had no star thing about him. Like, there are a lot of people you meet, and they have an aloofness or a rudeness or a weird thing. My dad was just a guy, and he was a guy on stage, he was a guy off stage. And he showed me this thing one time, you can't see it on podcast, but it was pretty darn funny. He said, you know, when I go out in public and I don't want to be recognized, I walk like this. And he said, but when I walk out and I want to be Roger Miller, I walk like this. And he just showed it to me. It was just very subtle, but it was like, oh my gosh, I get it. Hey, hush. Toto. <laughs> Which brings me to the other thing. I train dogs. <laughs> it's a great in segue. It's a, your dog gave us the perfect segue. So he, he literally would slump if he was trying to hide and stand up straight. He if just he had a little way of not making eye contact. Then he'd go, okay, here I am and raise his head, you know. I think it was the mail the, person. It is the mailman. He's walking right down there. You want to know why they bark so much at the at the mailman? No, why the do they? Guy? Why is it the mailman? It, this make you'll, you'll you'll go aha. When they bark at the mailman, they're they're barking because somebody's coming. Right. But the mailman then always leaves, and they go, "Good, it worked." <laughs> oh, this I'll show they, you. They ah, woof, 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 and they go away. So they go. That reinforces the behavior. There you go. It's true. It actually reinforces. <laughs> it empowers the them. This is actually a confidence booster. That's right. <laughs> so they'll bark, and you know they'll bark at somebody who comes and goes away every day. You mentioned before that you wished that you had gotten to tell him how much you mm-hmm. appreciated him when he was alive. And mm-hmm. he, he did leave us too soon. He did. What do you think he would make of your of your songs today? I think? honestly think, um, this may sound too heavy, I don't want to get too heavy, but I think he wouldn't have let me give up on myself for that 10 years I gave up on myself. I don't think he would have let me. Mm-hmm. I think he would have been mad at that. And um, I, so I think he would have pulled me out of it. I think he would have written more with me. I think he would have been really nurturing. I think he would have been proud of... What I'm most proud of is, the, is what I call the invisible part of my career. It's, it's what I can achieve in the studio. Wait, well, you've done some of the things that you talk about. You wish you had a little more time with your father had given to you. You've now given that to others. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a skill that I don't think people understand very well what it is because it's kind of invisible, but producing music is, you know, you go in a studio and you say that guitar, that sound, that guitar player, whatever. It's kind of like the paintbrush for a painter, you know, or the director of a movie, you know, uh, a producer in a studio is kind of like the director of a movie. They kind of say how it goes and how it should be arranged to a certain degree. And I feel like that's one of my strongest skills. And I do a lot of producing for acts you've never heard of that are brilliant. And as we all know, there are millions of people who are amazing and have amazing talent, but they don't have the recognition that some of the bigger stars do. But um, I've worked with a lot of acts that I, I feel like I, I maybe I've helped them move along to the next level. But there's another thing that happens in the music industry that I think that's uh, unfortunate. You know, the, the major labels or the bigger acts or whatever – there are about five or ten people that they choose from, and they say that person will be producing. Okay, go get the hit producer and put them on this, you know. And and it's very hard to break through that ceiling. So I'm kind of a little workhorse that just produces off to the side. I run my own company. I, I work with people a lot, and I, I love it. I love that nurturing and, and putting projects together. 
you know, a song of yours I always like was Wake Up and Smell the Whiskey. <laughs> really? Okay. I always liked that. I think I gave you a good review on that one. Uh, you probably did, yeah. You want to hear a yeah. little... Um... Wake up and smell the whiskey. Turn the radio on. Pour another cup of misery. And wonder where it all went wrong. Stumble out of my bedroom. Watch the sun going down Wake up and smell the whiskey And pick my heart up off the ground What is your process like as a writer? Um, do you like to like be write by inspiration, write by appointment, write by... I've learned to do both. I can very distinctly go through my catalog of songs and say appointment inspiration appointment inspiration the inspiration ones are nine times out of ten better than the ones that aren't um you know appointment writing for those of you who don't know is in nashville what we have is people Mm co-write almost all the time Mm -hmm. and they make appointments and they say we're going to write at 10 this morning and we're going to and then you show up right with your little idea book right and you write together. Right. And that's appointment writing. And it's kind of like dating. You either click or you don't. You mm-hmm. know. And so if you're not clicking, it's like pulling teeth. And you're just checking your watch, hoping it'll be over soon. You know. Um, and I always suggest writing with people who are better than you are because it brings something out of you. When you write with people who are worse than you are, there's no point in being there because you could do it on your own. That's mm-hmm. how I feel. <laughs> the other thing is um, Nashville is such a town of deals on everything that the more you co-write, your, your chances are doubling that that person will get your song cut or their publisher will get your cut or there's more people involved that will then go out and network the song so that's cheerleaders for the song more cheerleaders for the song so that is more of an advantage but in my case i just started gradually with the exception of three or four people um that i've written with like i think eric church is about the one of the best writers i've written with and he's a fantastic writer he's a fantastic writer and And an awesome artist Yes, he's an awesome artist, but because he's such a kind of a showman and all those things, I don't think people drill down and realize what a great writer he is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you sit across from him and write, his um, the words come out, you know, he goes, what about this? And it's fully formed. <laughs> you know, like um, one of the best lines I ever wrote that he actually thought of most of it, and I get to take credit for it. This is the best thing about co-writing. They think of it, and you go, look, I wrote that song. <laughs> <laughs> But we have a, a line in a song we wrote that he never cut called Whiskey Wings, and it says, um, um, I'm two sheets to the wind, and I can feel the third one blowing in. Ooh, that's good. And I'm proud of that line, and I, I think we crafted it together. I don't know, but he probably had most of it. But when you sit across from somebody thinking of that stuff, you, I, I, I would just, you know, you try not to be awestruck, but he's, he's a great writer. You did do one song for your dad called Daddy's Shadow, which kind of yeah, sums up this that. whole yeah. show. It kind of is the... Yeah. It is the elephant in the room. Yes. Kind of like, yeah. And I want you to talk to me about that song and then play a little bit of it for me. I mean, it clearly addresses what this whole show is kind of about. Okay. Yeah, I wrote this song for my dad and um, about my dad. Um, and I just, uh, I didn't want it to be sad and maudlin and, oh, my dad, you know. But I just kind of wrote this little thing. And uh, I've always felt like he was my greatest influence and uh but I, I i'm not sure if he knew it and it's a blessing and a curse it's far more a blessing than it is a curse uh, none of the things that are good in my life would have happened if he hadn't been my dad but um you know there are times where you just go you listen to my song and and you can't get heard or you can't get appreciated because they can't get past that and that's okay you know i'm sure if um 
George Clooney's son was an actor, we'd all go, uh, well, I guess a lot of people have made it that way. I don't know. Tim McGraw only got signed because he was Tug McGraw's son. And oh, the yeah. promotion man was a big Mets fan. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And whatever happened to Tim? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, anyway, this is the thing I wrote for my dad. My father was good to his oldest child. He taught me to see through his eyes How to look to the future How to learn from the past How there's always some truth in a lie When I was a boy I stood in his shadow Turning my back to his words But by the time I was 20 And becoming a man I was amazed at how much he had learned I'm always running, I'm always walking, but I never end up alone. Cause the further I run, the closer I come to standing in my daddy's shadow. Excellent work, Sonny. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. It's Dean Miller, folks. Thank you so much. What a great morning this was. Man, thank you for having me. I can't <laughs> believe it's over. Thank you. Thanks. It was great. Thanks. It was really good. Thank you. Before we let you go, we want to welcome you to the B-Side. This is a chance for us to break out of the format and have a little fun. Today, we've got a double bonus because Dean Miller tells us two gems about his dad, the one and only Roger Miller. The first one, hanging out with Elvis, and the second, having a little fun with Johnny Cash. My favorite one is, um, it's the late 60s. My dad is at the height of his career. He's hot. You know what I mean? when he had his TV show. He had his TV show. Mm -hmm. He's hot. And he's riding his motorcycle down Sunset Boulevard in L.A. No helmet, of course, because my dad was a real safety freak. <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. But he pulls up to a stoplight on Sunset Boulevard on his motorcycle, and a limo pulls up next to him. And the driver rolls down his window and says, Sir, I have Elvis Presley in the car, and he'd like to meet you. So they pull around the corner. My dad gets off his motorcycle. He gets in the back of the limo with Elvis Presley. And they kind of hang out and talk for a while and have a good time or whatever. And then as my dad is about to get out of the car, Elvis Presley asks my father for his autograph. Now that's when you've made it. <laughs> that's when you've made it, exactly. That's a cool story. Isn't it? <laughs> Amazing. Love it. Yeah. The other quick one that I think is a really cool one is that my dad and Johnny Cash were good friends. And there uh, is a story where they were staying in a hotel. Have you heard this story? And they're staying in a hotel. <clears throat> and they decide, let's cut out of this hotel and not pay. Just for fun. <laughs> Just for fun, right? So this is a different era, of course. So they go down in the lobby and Johnny fakes like he's having a heart attack. And my dad, call an ambulance! He's having a heart attack. They call the ambulance. They come. They get him. They put him in the ambulance. My dad goes, I'm going to the hospital with you, Johnny. They get in the ambulance. They drive off and then never go back. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, I was going to call my book Hillbillies on Amphetamines. <laughs> <laughs> you should. That's great. I love that. Oh, amphetamines fed this business for a long time. Yes, indeed. We would not have what we have if it weren't for amphetamines. <laughs> it's true. It would have been a whole different world. 
real quick, another story. You you may know this. Do you know down on, on 16th Avenue, do you know the Belmont Church, right? It's right. on the right. And mm-hmm. Caddy Corner is their Bible study building. Right. It's a brick, brick building. Mm-hmm. And I, my dad was doing Big River in town here, and I was driving down 16th with him. And he goes, see that building? And he points to that Bible study building. And I go, yeah? He goes, that used to be the pharmacy where you could go in the back and say the magic word and you could get anything you want. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, the doctor who did the prescribing, we lived in East Nashville on Woodland, and his name was Dr. Snap. Yes. <laughs> How perfect is I remember that? that. And all you had to do was walk in there and go, doctor, I'm working two jobs. Wow. <laughs> I'm working <laughs> two jobs. Of course. <laughs> What and was that, the magic word in the back? I'm I sorry. wish I knew. I don't know. I think it's, I'm working two jobs. Oh, <laughs> is that it? Maybe that's it. My dad also went to a, um, a drugstore in Mexico with, uh, with uh, Thumbs Carlisle. Uh, Thumbs mm-hmm. Carlisle was his it's guitar dangerous. player. And they were an evil pair together. And they walked in this thing, and, and, they, and the guy said, and my dad pulls out the, the certain kind of speed they don't make anymore. I forgot what it is. And he says, do you have these in broken English to the... To this Mexican guy, and the guy goes, "Yeah." He says, "How many do you want?" My dad says, "How many you got?" <laughs> so the guy comes up with a suitcase with two quarts, quart jars full of these pills, and my dad says, "I'll take them." <laughs> and he smuggles two quarts of pills back to the states with him, and he mm-hmm. said, "My friends and I had a good time for a long time on those <laughs> two quarts of pills." Oh, bad. Next week, the up-and-coming band Smithfield comes to town. Trey Smith and Jennifer Fiedler have known each other since they were kids, and it shows with some remarkable harmonies. It's an in-depth look at how they started singing together, their rise through the ranks, and why they're on every artist to watch list in 2018. Smithfield, on the next Children of Song, the podcast that combines live music with great storytelling. Till next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.